love that song, the truth of it, that Christ is reigning and ruling through his church now, and one day will reign over the whole earth through a combined church and restored Israel from Jerusalem. And until then, we are enjoying the foundation of God in the church. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Lord willing, we are going to study this passage today and finish up this chapter next week. It is a, a blessing to go through some very familiar texts of Scripture with some fresh eyes of looking at the context in which they were delivered. Romans chapter 10, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 14 and 15 today, but I want to get verses, uh, start back at verse, uh, uh, let's pick it up in verse 12 to get a running start. Paul writes, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him for... Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. There's a mounting crisis in the church of Jesus Christ today. It's local and it's international. This crisis is one with which you're probably a bit familiar, but you might not have thought about it very deeply. You see it on the mission field. You find it in the pews of the American church. Now, I'm convinced unless we're absolutely intentionally careful, we could find ourselves in the middle of the same crisis here at Mission Road. The crisis can be framed in how we answer this one all-important, all-encompassing question. In fact, I would encourage you to, to maybe have this discussion and ask this question uh, with your family at lunch or with your care group. Of course, you're going to have a head start today in this passage. What is the mission of the church? What's the church for? What's its mission? Why do we exist? There are so many answers to this question given by so many different people. Some answer by saying the church is to be a political force. We should be electing the right people to do the right things. So the church should be uh, organized to gather and leverage one another to elect the right people. We're the moral majority. Others think the church is a social club. We're a social alternative to the world. Where the church, the world rather, has bars and sporting events and sport leagues to have their fellowship. We have the church. It's just a social alternative to the world. Others would suggest that the church is, is to be all about social justice, righting the wrongs of society. In other words, making a social impact on people's lives because we are Christians. We should have an effect on people. and They should understand the right and wrongs of God because we know the right and wrongs and tell them the right and wrongs. Others think the church is to be a solution to poverty. 
it's not a, it's rare that a week goes by that someone doesn't stop by our church and ring our doorbell and come in and ask one of us as pastors if we can help them with a bill, with the church needs to help pay for something. Which is interesting when we begin to ask, do, do you go to this church? Well, no. Do you know anyone in this church? Well, no. Have you ever been to this church? Well, no. But somehow they thought, if I go to that place that says church, they will give me money to solve my problems. And if we did that, can you imagine how long we would stay in business? Others think that the church should accent mercy ministries like orphanages and soup kitchens. I love orphanages and I love soup kitchens. Is that, is that the message and mission of the church? And a lot of people, especially in missions today, believe that the church is God's solution to the social injustices and social problems that exists in the world. Let's think back for a moment about where we are in our study of God's Word. We're studying through Romans. It's a group of Italians who come to know Christ to whom Paul is writing this letter. Rome had over a million people, a million residents, and the social classes were not only unfair and distinct, they were legislated. There was disease, especially uncontrolled sexually transmitted diseases, prostitution, slavery. There was no insurance, no court system, no antibiotics, no place to appeal if you were treated harshly or unjustly. There were a lot of problems in Rome, a lot of problems in Rome. So when Paul writes to Rome, it's interesting knowing the culture of Rome, what he chose to write about and how he chose to challenge the Christians to respond to that culture. In their excellent article written in, a, in an excellent article written in the Master's Seminary Journal, um, my friends, two very dear friends, Joel James, who's preached in this pulpit, and Brian Biedebach, uh, who's in Malawi, Joel's in uh, South Africa, and deal with the social um, gospel that the old liberals used to call it liberation theology, this idea that the church's mission is to go solve social injustices. They deal with it all the time, both internally with the expectations of the people and externally with, externally with people who send money and people to try to solve these woes. They wrote an article about this. Let me quote from this article. It's very interesting because they bring our friends from Rome into the article. Joel and Brian write, what would the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans have looked like if it were written by one of today's evangelical social justice advocates? It might have sounded like this, they write. I can't wait to come to Rome to lead the charge of Christ-centered social justice. Deeds must precede word. We need to proclaim Christ's love for the city by working to improve the general civility, race relations, social conditions of Rome. We need to eradicate slavery and poverty. We need to start orphanages. The cynical people of Rome won't listen to the gospel unless we first help them flourish socially and economically. But if the church organizes a series of community-based services to eradicate unemployment and to uplift the disadvantaged, then we'll see the city of Rome transformed. They go on to say this. Of course, what Paul actually wrote was, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. 
The gospel that Paul went on to describe in Romans is a gospel of sin and wrath and cross and repentance and faith and forgiveness, not one of social improvement and human flourishing. Paul was not lacking in compassion, they write. In Galatians 2.10, he wrote, They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. However, Paul was fully aware of the social conditions that prevailed in such a large city of the Roman Empire, including Rome itself, and he gave no attention to a social action missions strategy, end quote. Wow. Similarly, D.A. Carson writes this, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy, end quote. If you watch the news, and I tend to be a bit of a news junkie, until it makes me mad and I have to work on my sanctification and turn the news off, but um, uh, you you hear, because America has been involved in several overseas uh, military um, encounters and uh, strategies over the last few decades, You hear this term, it's an interesting term, and I want to borrow it for our own discussion today. The term is this. Have you heard this term, mission creep? Mission creep is is, is defined by uh, a military strategist as this. It's a phrase used to describe what happens when an operation goes beyond what it intentionally planned to do. When an operation goes beyond what it intentionally planned to do. That's mission creep. You got your mission, but once you get there, you start doing other things. Other things aren't necessarily bad things, but when those other things get you off of what you went to do, it becomes mission creep. You, you forget what you're there for. I think we're in danger in the church of mission creep, where we want to help people and dig wells and have orphanages and have soup kitchens and, and deal with the poor and And there's so many wonderful things that the Bible does condone, except those are collateral and subordinate to the gospel, not to be done instead of gospel work. Paul lands on this issue here in Romans 10. What is the mission of the church? In verse 13, he's asked, or he said very clearly, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The mission of the church has to do with salvation of souls and sinners and their maturing through Christ. It's an Old Testament pronouncement that was beyond dispute, but Israel had not done this. They had not called on the Lord. They had presumed on the Lord. They had thought because they had certain attachments to the, to the, to the law and were doing certain things and not eating certain things that God would look at them with some kind of pleasure and give them a pass. The passage following this in verses 16 to 21, we'll look at that next week, Paul continues to have his discussion of Israel's spiritual condition. But here in verses 14 to 15, it sets up that discussion with what has been termed the chain of evangelism. I like that. The the processes in evangelism. Mentioning the end result in the chain of evangelism Calling on the Lord, that's the final step of throwing yourself on the mercy of God. Paul begins there at the end and actually works backwards. This is an interesting passage logically because he goes from the end to the beginning. Here's the sequence. To call on the Lord, moving backwards. To call on the Lord, one must believe. 
To believe, one must hear the message. To hear the message, one must proclaim the message. And proclaiming the message only happens if people are sent to proclaim it. And as important as it is to get people involved in evangelism, I'm not sure that's the only point Paul is making here. Tom Schreiner says this, Paul's point is simple. It's that, the God, that God has sent people to preach. It's the first and vital step in the process that leads to salvation. Paul then quotes Isaiah 52, 7 to make his point, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God has sent a constant stream of prophets and apostles proclaiming the God's purposes and inviting these Jews to salvation. But Paul and his fellow evangelists represent the latest phase in this task of proclamation. But the Jews weren't getting it. Now what I want to do is something a little different this morning with this text. And I think we have Paul's logic giving us permission to do so. Paul starts at the, begin, at the end of the process of salvation, and he works backwards all the way to the beginning, all the way to the sending. And what we're going to do is take it in chronological order. So we're going to go to the end in verse 15 and work back into verse 14. I don't think Paul would mind because we're going to cover all that he said. Let's look at it this way. Let's break it down by outlining the temporal sequence rather, of facilitating the mission of the church. The temporal, the time sequence. The temporal sequence of facilitating the mission of the church. Remember, Paul starts at the end of calling out on the Lord. How does someone get there? Let's go down to verse 15 and work backwards if we can. Verse 15, he asks this question. How will they preach unless they are sent? That's the first one, sending. That's the first temporal uh, sequence of facilitating the mission of the church. Sending. The church is a sending institution. How will they preach unless they are sent? That word sent is our, is our clue, our key. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul asks a logical sequence of rhetorical questions. How can, how can, how can, intending for us to say, well, it must be, it must be, it must be. So we're going to go to the, the conclusion of that, which is really the beginning, and work back toward what it means to call on the Lord. This sending is the exact application of what Bob read earlier in Matthew chapter 28. Flip over there for a moment. In Matthew 28, this is the great, what? Commission, and we're included in that word co-mission is mission. This is where he launches the disciples onto the mission of the church that's outlined here in Romans chapter 11. Romans 28, excuse me, Matthew 28, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded north to Galilee, about 100 miles. They went up because Jesus had arranged it to the mountain where Jesus had designated. I'll meet you here. Probably there, there was no GPS. They had been there before. I'm going to meet you at this place. We're going to have a special time of commissioning. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Some were doubtful. Some were still saying, is, is this really Jesus alive from the dead? Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's quite a statement. The authority of the throne of the universe is Christ, and the authority of men and women on the earth is Christ's. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Much has been made of this passage. There's a, a central verb in this passage. It's make disciples. I know in the English text it says go, but it's actually a participle in Greek. It means as you're going, but don't dismiss the participle. It's very important. There's an assumption that we're going, that we're sending, that people are on mission to make disciples. This involves sending and being sent and, drumroll, going ourselves. How do you define missionary? You might be tempted to say it's somebody who gives up a lot, goes overseas, and gives their life to the Lord. And you would be right about some people. But a missionary, technically, definitionally, biblically, and according even to Noah Webster, is someone who is on a mission. I'm looking hard at this passage in Matthew 28, and there's nothing about missionaries, nothing about Africa or Russia, China, Japan. It just says all the nations. Does America fall into the category of all the nations? Does Kansas and Missouri fall into the category of all the nations? Is your neighborhood a part of all the nations, or does this just count for people who leave our country? If it's just the people who are outside of the country of this, this is, this is Israel when he's given it. It's not even America. We typically think, well, this is a, given to us as Americans. We send missionaries out. The, no, we are missionaries in, on mission on behalf of God because of the gospel every day, everywhere, all the time, 24-7. Going. Make disciples. So let me ask you two questions. Are you going and are we sending? The sending process is at the very beginning. It's a commission. It's go and tell people the good news that they can be saved from their sins. Are we going ourselves? Your office, your neighborhood, your school. Are you going? Also, are we sending? John Piper is so right when he says there are only three options with missions. Go, send, or be disobedient. Pretty straightforward. Go yourself, send others, or be disobedient to the call of God to extend the gospel to the nations. Parents, can I, can I let you in on a little secret? I'm praying for, for you. I'm praying for your kids. And you know what I'm praying I'm praying that the Lord will raise some of your sons and daughters up to go be missionaries in hard and difficult places. I'm praying that some of your sons will grow up to be, to be preachers, elders, ministers. Are you willing to let them do that? Encourage them if you see that spark? Let's not just be a sending church that finds people who are already there and supports them. Let's be a sending church that sees young men and women rise up to go do frontline gospel ministries. That means expending capital. 
We've talked about this over and over. Capital, uh, there, there's three kinds of capital. There's, there's um, uh, um, resources, rather. There's, there's, there's capital, including budgets and buildings, money and buildings and stuff. There's human resources, human capital, that's people. And there's divine resources, that's God himself. And we access that through prayer. Are we leveraging those three resources for the gospel, for the mission that he's called us to? Are we a sending church from your pew and around the world? That's at the end of verse 15, in the middle of verse 15. Let's back up into verse 14. That leads to preaching. We send preachers. We send proclaimers. Now, don't think, well, this, is a, this has got to be someone who is just has been to seminary and knows how to outline a passage and knows Greek and Hebrew. This is anyone who would proclaim the gospel, but specifically it does include those that were calling out, separating, training to be preachers. How will they hear, verse 14 says at the end, how will they hear without a preacher? Now, to understand what Paul is referencing here, look down at verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and is hearing by the word, the preaching of, about Christ. It's presenting the gospel. It's preaching about Christ. We find out here in verse 15 that that's all done. I love this phrase. Look at verse 15. How will they preach unless they're sent just as just as it is written. Paul was an expositor. Paul based what he said on the scriptures he had in the Old Testament. That's what we do in, in the same vein as well. Preachers and proclaimers are facilitators to understand what God has said and what God means by what he said. You get a great, great picture of this in the book of Acts. This is, uh, it seems like this passage is one we keep gravitating back toward. Acts chapter 8 you're welcome to listen if you want to follow along. It's chapter 8, verse 25. Acts 8. When they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. He's up north in, in Israel. Spoke to Philip saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is going from Jerusalem back to, toward Egypt into Africa. Go on that road. And then he says this. This is important. This is a desert road. Why is that important? What is there not a lot of in the desert? Water. Keep reading. So he got up and went. And there was this African guy, an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come up to Jerusalem to worship. We know he had been proselytized to be Jewish because he's reading the Jewish scriptures. We'll know that in a moment. He went up to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Interesting. Philip, get up, go to Jerusalem, and go on the road that leads south to Gaza, toward Egypt. This guy was worshiping in Jerusalem and gets on the same road going south through Egypt to go back to Ethiopia. What a coincidence, tongue-in-cheek. He's reading the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, and he was reading it out loud, by the way. 
Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join his chariot. Just remember this. If you're ever prompted in your heart to share the gospel with someone, prompted in your heart to tell someone about Christ, that's probably not the devil. And it's certainly not your flesh. I know we believe God has spoken in his word. But do you believe that the Holy Spirit prompts you to think thoughts? Well, he certainly told Philip here, go join his chariot. Philip ran up and he heard him as he's approaching reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand who you're reading? Do you understand this text? The the timing is incredible. And the Ethiopian says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? There's your justification for expository preaching. It's guiding people to understand what the Bible has said. Hopefully, that's what I get to do every week. And he invited Philip, come up and sit with me. Now, he's reading the passage, which the passage of Scripture he was reading was uh, this, Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life was removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Don't miss that. He preached a person. He proclaimed Jesus to him. As they went along the road, where is the road? In the desert. They came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. That would have been a surprise. It's the desert. What prevents me from being baptized? You know what that tells me? Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The commission included teaching and baptizing. Philip's presentation of the gospel included teaching and the fact that he needed to be baptized. Identifying with Christ. Not to be saved, but to show that he was all out and all in and willing to be identified with with the gospel. Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, wow, that sounds exactly like Romans 9. Romans 11, rather. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered him, he says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Whatever Philip told him, it was centered on Christ. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water. This is a Baptist ceremony. There's no sprinkling going on here. They went down into the water, Philip, as well as the eunuch. And he baptized them when they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord. I just got it. This is a little funny. If you don't find humor in certain places in Scripture, God invented humor, you're probably not reading as carefully as you might. Listen to this. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him. But he went on his way rejoicing. 
But Philip found himself at Azotus. And he kept preaching. When I get to heaven, I want to I have lunch with Philip. And just say something like, dude, you come up out of the water and you're somewhere else. What was that like? Luke didn't choose to tell us what it was like, but it will be interesting. What's the point? Someone was sent who proclaimed and preached about Jesus and salvation happened. We want to be a church that holds preaching in high regard because we hold the word of God in high regard. Do we not? He explained to him the scriptures that led this person to understand Christ. We also want to be a preacher training school. Not just a academic school. I mean a school that instructs and trains men. That's why we have the Expositor Seminary here. That's why I'm praying that God would raise some of your sons up to to be preachers. Wouldn't it be great if someone from this church ended up taking my position when I'm not here anymore? That'd be awesome. You are a church that loves preaching, but do you understand how odd that is? If you don't, let me give you a little help. In 1928, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the self-announced leader of liberalism, wrote an essay in Harper's Magazine entitled, What's Wrong with Preaching? Listen to what he says. Many, this 1928, many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. They take a passage from Scripture and, proceeding on the assumption that people attending church that morning are deeply concerned about what that passage means... They spend their half hour or more on historical exposition of the verse or chapter ending with some appended practical application to the auditors. Could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? Listen to this indictment on you. Who seriously supposes that, as a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation cares to start with what Moses, Isaiah, Paul, or John meant in those special verses or came to church deeply concerned about it. Then this statement. No one else who talks to the public so assumes that the vital interests of people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago. End quote. I do. I believe that they're, that they're words that matter. Don't you? Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that why we're Mission Road Bible Church? Faithful biblical preaching is public proclamation, proclamation that explains what the Bible says, what the Bible means, and why it matters. And it always points to a Savior. preaching. Next in the sequence is hearing. We're going backwards through verse 14. How will they believe in whom they have not heard? The key phrase in the, the, the pronouns here, him and whom. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? 
Notice these are personal pronouns relating to Jesus. The good news of God is a person. How many times do we keep seeing this? Paul started the whole book. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning his son. The good news of God concerns Jesus, not behavior modification, not trying harder, not being more moral. It's a relationship with a living, resurrected Savior named Jesus. How will they hear about him, hearing about him? You understand that the evangelism process is telling people about him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you, you're very familiar with this. You are a chosen race, talking to Jews and Gentiles. Interesting, he picks up this language. You're a chosen race. That's the language of the Old Testament. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why are we chosen? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our mission is to tell people excellent things about Jesus. Your goal in Bible reading, your goal in study, your goal in devotions, my goal as we sit down with God's word is to know more of the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can proclaim them. That's the teaching, preaching, evangelizing he's talking about. And if you say, well, what would I explain in the gospel? Is it possible to explain the excellencies of Jesus Christ without the gospel truth? Well, he was a great guy from Nazareth. Is that all you got? How can you not go to the cross, go to the grave, and get him out of the grave? It's, it's impossible to proclaim his excellencies without talking about the gospel. That's what they need to hear, Paul says. They need to hear that. Why do they need to hear it next? So they'll believe it. Believing is the next in this sequence. You have to hear it to believe it. Are we presenting the gospel so clearly that people know what they're receiving or rejecting? Look at the first part of that sentence. How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? Would they have to hear him before they will believe in him? Look at back to chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ, who is the end, the, the goal, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the law, for righteousness to everyone who does what? Who believes. This is incredible to me. And the more I study God's word, I just have to tell you, I, I get chills sometimes when I see, this sounds almost condescending and I don't mean it that way, the genius of God, the genius of the Holy Spirit, because if, if you preach any one passage or any one verse, you could sound really out of balance. But if you believe in what we do here, which is called Lectio Continuum, verse-by-verse verse explanation of the Scriptures, then eventually God's responsible for balancing God. He, he will do it. So we're in chapter 9, and we're hearing in chapter 8. Chapter 8, predestined, called, chosen, foreordained, foreknown. We get in chapter 9. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I choose one before, uh, one over the other as one of the twins before the other, before they were born, before they'd done anything right or wrong. Not only that, before you think that's hard enough, I hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And before you say there's a problem with that, I'm the, 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 the potter and you're the clay, says the Lord. And you almost go, 
Then you get to the end, and it's the last verse of chapter nine. Uh, of chapter nine. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Chapter 10, verse 4, you have to believe in him. Here, how can they believe if they haven't heard? You say, so what is it? Is God absolutely sovereign in salvation? Yeah. Romans 9 says he is. Does man have the responsibility and obligation and invitation to believe? Yeah, that's Romans 10. But those can't be together. Those can't be true together. You're right in human logic. And God says, my ways are not your ways. So we're not bound by human logic when we read God's word. How will they believe in him who they've not heard? Romans chapter 3 verse 21, apart from the law, the, uh, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets, even the righteousness, perfection, justification of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Christ is the one in whom we must believe to be saved. Christ is the one who we present for people to believe in. That's the one they hear about, which leads to belief. Which culminates finally in calling. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling. The beginning of the verse. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. Now we've made it all the way back to the heels of verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call on the Lord? Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mission of the church is evangelistic in its heart and I the more I read, the more I study, the, the more, the older I get, the more devotions I have, I just, I'm more and more convinced that my life has been so sometimes deceived to have mission creep away from Christ. Just to creep away from the mission. The mission is to know and present the Lord Jesus. We're Christians. Christ is our Lord. He says in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now look at the end of verse 15. Let's go back to the end of this verse. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. What is this? Well, I got to tell you, I've been a preacher for over 30 years. And I have never had one compliment in three decades about my feet. Probably just the opposite. I have small feet. I have, it's tr I have trouble finding shoes. Not only that, I have one that's a good size eight or eight and a half, and one's that's one foot that's maybe a seven. And so when you're trying to find, find shoes, it's really, really difficult. I, my, my feet are, are not my strength. You know, it's not my, not my best play. I've never gone in, into anybody and said, you know, see my feet? <laughs> so what is this? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's talking metaphorically. How beautiful are the messengers 
are those who come from the hills. From Isaiah 52, 7. How lovely on the mountains. That was, that's where help would come from. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. There's the salvific reference. And says to Zion, your God reigns. We proclaim that Jesus is, what's the word? Lord. And Isaiah says the message of the, the one whose feet are beautiful is the Lord reigns. Do you see the connection? The messengers have been sent and the gospel has been proclaimed. We have to be so mindful of mission creep that we would just get off focus, off note, that we would would just get distracted. I used to uh, um, take guitar lessons from a friend when I was younger and um, he would give me a set of exercises to do. You know, do these chords in this progression, do this scale in this progression over and over and over. And, and I would sit down to do it, and I would do it once or twice, then I'd play two or three songs that I liked. And I'd come back, then I'd do something else that I liked. It's mission creep. I'm not doing what I was there to do. Do your kids have mission creep when they do homework? How about you? You have an assignment to do. When I used to have uh, assignments in seminary, I, I would sit down to, to do an assignment and realize everything needed to be cleaned. I thought, I'll, I'll study better if I clean the room. What is that? <laughs> mission creep. The Church of Jesus Christ, the Mission Road Bible Church in specific, must not allow our mission of gospel proclamation to be marginalized because we are distracted by collateral opportunities to serve people. We should be serving people. Yes, we should be involved in social ministries and mercy ministries. But those are always to be subordinated to the mission of disciple making. What's disciple making mean? Disciples of Jesus Christ. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to to what? Value Jesus Christ, above all else, in every dimension of life, as regulated by the Word of God. That's our mission statement built on the Great Commission explained here in Romans 10. Let's stay on mission. Let's stay on mission and be a church that sends people to stay on mission.